Lord, we're grateful that we can gather together as your people this day and see how this text might apply to our lives. And not just that, Lord, but how it might help us to, to follow you more wholeheartedly. Lord, I pray that you would take our minds now, think through them. Take my lips, speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In late July, every year, all across our country, the, the finest football players gather for training camp. And it's got a lot of fanfare these days. It didn't used to be that way. Back in the early 60s, when Vince Lombardi was coaching the Green Bay Packers at St. Norbert's College at De Pere, Minnesota, the finest athletes, I, I, just stand next to an NFL player just once. You know, I'm telling you, these guys are genetic mutants. They're bigger than you, they're faster than you, they're stronger than you. And they're amazing athletes. And Vince Lombardi would stand in front of these guys and look at them and say these words every training camp. Gentlemen, this is a football. That's a little obvious. What's the point? We're going to get back to fundamentals. We're going to get back to first things first. Before we talk about X's and O's and strategies, we're going to get back to the basics. And that's true for every discipline, isn't it? Really? You know, when you, when you were in school, the math class, you went back and kind of did a little bit of review, getting back to a little bit of what you learned last year before you began the next year. Musicians work on their scales ad nauseum. Percussionists work at their rudiments to warm up. The same rudiments all the time. Vocalists sing their solfege. Artists, I'm told, you know, will, painters will, will draft it in pencil and edit it and edit it before they really put the paint to the canvas. And on a much higher level, how well we Christians recognize and maintain our fundamentals, our spiritual priorities, bears incalculable consequences for our entire lives. Sadly, some have never given a second thought to life's priorities. Others have, but have chosen the wrong priorities. Still others have the right priorities and perspective but do not have the self-control or the wisdom or whatever to live by them. In John 21, verses 12 through 17, Jesus sets the matter straight for Peter and for all who make up his church. I invite you to open up in your Bibles to John 21, verse 12 through 17 in John's biography. If you're visiting with us, you'll notice that in the back of the bulletin, we have this exact text. We're in this series, Encounters with the Risen Savior, for a very specific purpose. Because as we see 
the risen Lord the way these disciples reacted, we too can be impacted in a similar way. So the curtain lifts this morning. The backdrop is the Sea of Tiberias. We also know it as the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias is the Gentile term for the same body of water. You know, before I moved here, it was Jacob's Field. Now we call it Progressive Field. Same, same stadium, right? Same thing. It's just different angles. So in the foreground is a rocky beach and a glowing fire. The principal characters in this true life drama are Jesus, Peter, and six other disciples seated around this fire. And the key to understanding was about to transpire here is an appreciation of what Peter is feeling at this exact moment. For while Peter, well, Peter made the greatest confession in all of church history, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he also denied Jesus three times just after the Savior's arrest. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. You know what he's feeling, right? Dick Lucas was brought to St. Helens because it was an uppity, upper-crusty, country-club church in the heart of the business district of London. But a group of businessmen were praying for a godly expositor of God's word, and they discovered Dick Lucas, and they brought him there in 1962, the year I was born. And one of those businessmen that was on the vestry at that time had a daughter who was in high school just a couple of years after Dick got there to St. Helens. Like many teenage girls do, she decorated her Bible with stickers. You know, so she had her Bible all decorated with stickers and she had it with her because she was trying to, to be a witness to her friends in school. And so at uh, science class, she, she had her Bible out on the desk and she went to the restroom and she came back and the whole class was standing around the Bible mocking it, making fun of it. And they all wanted to know whose it was. She came back in the room and says, hey, is this yours? She goes, not mine. She walked away crushed because she knew she had denied her Lord by denying that it was her Bible. That businessman calls Dick up and a week later he meets with her. And here's this beautiful, young, believing teenage girl struggling with the essence of her faith. Oh, we know what this is like, right? Immediately after Peter's denial, Jesus was brought out from the Sanhedrin and their eyes met. The fallen disciple and the eternal Lord. Looking straight through into Peter's heart. I can't imagine the agony of that moment for Peter as that rooster crowed. Jesus unblinking with his omniscient eyes looking at him. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, but his tears could not wash that image from his mind. He would never forget the awful thing he'd done. And I'm sure he thought to himself, could he ever be what he had been again? This was Peter's baggage at this moment around the charcoal fire on the Sea of Tiberias. Sure, he had seen the risen Christ. 
He had heard Jesus say to them, Peace be with you. But Peter couldn't forget his failure. Had he disqualified himself for faithful service? Would his heart ever indeed know peace again? All of that is the background of this passage. Last week, we observed that Peter and John and the five other disciples left Jerusalem to go up to Galilee just just to sort things out, to recuperate from the whirlwind of the recent events that they had experienced. And the fishing, I'm sure, was therapeutic with the wind at their back, the water and the sky, the miracle catch of fish that Jesus provided while he's standing at the shore. I'm sure the the catching of the fish was even more therapeutic. They probably just overflowed with joy. This is a trip, you know. We can't even haul them in. Just put the sail down. We'll drag the fish to the shore. It's great. But Peter was not at all better. He had his baggage. He doubted his own fidelity, his ability to walk with Jesus, to minister to others. Could he ever be, be used Again, he needed a touch, as we all do at times. God has used this very text to touch many of his sons and daughters. This is the text that Dick Lucas shared with the young teenage girl in the early 60s. I personally have found this to be one of the most helpful passages in all of Scripture. Because it takes me back to the ground of my faith. Helps me to assess where I really am. And instructs me on how to set my spiritual priorities straight. In other words, friends, this is our spiritual football. Let's get back to first things first. So we have a fish breakfast on Tiberias Sea. It evokes a timeless, very gentle picture with the risen Lord, his back to the glistening sea as the sun comes over the horizon, serving breakfast on the beach to a damp crew of disciples who have been working all night as the smoke wafts up between them. When you read verse 12, there's a hint there that there's very little conversation going on. Something was different. There's a supernatural that pervades everything in this this scene. There's an awkward silence around this fire as they gaze at the flames. The flames are kind of hypnotic, especially an outside fire, right? And Jesus speaks two truths that you must, must, must get into your head and your heart as you walk away from here this morning. Number one, that God restores failures. And two, God helps set our priorities straight. God restores failures, and God assists us in getting our priorities straight. Let's look first at God restoring failures in the person of Peter. All right, breakfast is finished. Jesus is the first to speak. I'm sure Peter's heart skipped a beat 
when he heard the Lord's words directed to him in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What Jesus was asking is, Simon, do you truly love me? After all that has happened, and you know what I mean, can you truly say that you love me, Simon? And do you love me more than these other disciples do? John does not say what ran through Peter's mind at these cutting words, but far from our experience, but but from our experience, we can imagine. His heart probably began to race, his stomach churned, he probably blushed. It's a tense moment. And for several reasons, Peter addressed him as Simon, son of John. He didn't address him as Peter. Did you notice that? It called into question his new title of Peter the Rock. His personal message was, Peter, do you remember your human weakness? You remember what you were like before I met you? The question, though motivated by love, was directed to hurt, and it did. Jesus also asked Peter if he loved him more than the other disciples did. Here, Peter couldn't help but think of the upper room just a couple of weeks earlier. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Matthew records, though they will all fall away, Jesus, because of you, I will never fall away. Do you love me more than these? Furthermore, I'm sure the fire on the beach undoubtedly reminded Peter of the scene of the fire where he was warming himself, where he denied the Lord. I'm sure Peter is an emotional wreck as the mesmerizing flames came up on the fire with those same innocent, unblinking eyes looking at him. Do you love me more than these? I will never fall away. Do you love me? The power of Jesus' question to Simon is mercifully brutal. How would Peter answer that? Well, we see in verse 15, he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The word Peter used can be translated affection, friendship. English is insufficient here. It's, it's that brotherly love. Jesus didn't ask him, did he love him with a brotherly love? He loved him if he asked, loved him unconditionally. He said, you agape me. He could not bring himself to a full, professed, full love. So he said, Lord, I have an affection, a deep, personal attachment for you. I cannot say that I love you agape unconditionally. Lord, not after all my failures. Not after all my disgrace. Peter's presumption is gone. The Lord then charged him, feed my lambs. In other words, serve me, follow me. But Jesus wasn't through. So he asks him a second time. Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
that is, Simon dropping all comparisons now. The question is, do you really love me? That's the bottom line. And he asked him again, do you love me unconditionally? It's agape love in the Greek. We can be sure at this moment they started to shuffle in their seats. You know, if you're just one of those disciples listening to this, this is getting a little uncomfortable, you know. You know. As the smoke wafts above the fire, and Peter carefully and quietly answered back, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, professing an affectionate, not a full-blown love. There are those who would criticize Peter for giving him an affectionate, brotherly love like that. But in 1 Corinthians 16.22, St. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, If anyone has no friendship love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Friendship love is a wonderful love, as far as it goes. If that's all we can summon up, that's okay. Jesus will accept it. So again, Jesus' gentle response to that is, tend my sheep. There's a stark honesty in the Lord's questioning, but his words are gracious back to Peter. Jesus is doing something wonderful for Peter. So he asks him a third time. Verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now this time he asked literally, do you have a friendship? Do you phileo me? Do you have a friendship love for me? Do you really have the affection for me that you claim to have, Simon? And so the Lord took Peter at his word. In his first question, the Lord challenged the superiority of Peter's love. The second question, he challenged whether Peter had any love at all. And third, the final question, he challenged Peter's claim to have an affectionate love. So verse 17 says, Peter was grieved. He's heartbroken here. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you with a friendship love. God, you know where I am. But I don't dare claim any more than that. I can't love you unconditionally. I, I love you with the friendship love. Peter did love Jesus with the deepest love, but his illusions are gone. His presumptions are gone. And Jesus accepts that and says, okay, feed my sheep. Three times. How many times did he deny him? Three times. It's a complete restoration too, friends. And it restores and forgives the failure. Restoration is accomplished. And the disciples had seen it all. And now they probably understood that the, Jesus had planned it all. Peter's denials happened before a fire, and now Peter's confessions were for, before a fire. There were three denials, three confessions, and now three commissions that Peter was going to be the chief shepherd among them. He was going to shepherd them as well as the new church that was about to be planted. 
where the disciples had a fishing, go make fishers of men, Peter also had a shepherding ministry. Jesus is saying to us, ladies and gentlemen, through Peter's example, that the greatest priority in life is the nature and primacy of our love for God. Here we have Peter who had loved God with all his heart, but needed to be affirmed in that love before he could serve again fruitfully. Some of us may love Jesus dearly and others may not. But the abiding principle is that before all things, we must, even before any type of ministry, any charity work that you do, anything that we do, we must love him with all our hearts. That's the higher priori- highest priority of our lives. It's the highest priority for the theologian. It's the highest priority for the minister. It's the highest priority for the missionary. It's the highest priority for the professing Christian. To, if we want to please God, brings us to our second point, that loving God is the highest priority of getting back to the basics. Yes, we're called to serve, but it is all too easy in doing good works and doing fellowship and doing acts of kindness to put the priority on service above loving God. Being busy with ministry, busy with service, can easily become a primary focus to carry out our lives, even throughout the weeks in our jobs and whatever we do, trying to, to be a, a professing Christian among our, where we work, where we live, where we play. Too often we put our focus there and we need power in that ministry instead of getting the power where it truly comes from. Production or results, success, then becomes the center of our thinking. But the act, actual reverse is the reality. Roy Hessian, in his beautiful little book, That We Would See Jesus, says it this way. To concentrate on ministry and service for God may often actually thwart our attaining of the true goal, which is God himself. At first sight, it seems heroic to fling our lives away in the service of God and our fellows. We feel it is bound to be more to him than our experience of him. Service seems so unselfish, whereas concentrating on our walk with God seems selfish and self-centered. But it is the very reverse. The things that God is most concerned about are, are our coldness of heart towards himself and our proud, unbroken natures. Christian service of itself can, and so often does, leave our self-centered nature untouched. With those things hidden in our hearts, we have only to work alongside others, and we find resentment, hardness, criticism, jealousy, and frustration issuing from our hearts. We think we are working for God, but the test of how little of our service is for Him is revealed by our resentment or self-pity. We need to leave our lusting for ever-larger spheres of Christian service and concentrate on seeing God for ourselves and finding the deep answer for life in Him. 
Are you seeking Jesus? In the midst of our busy lives, are we loving Jesus? The inversion of life's priorities is a deadly trap, especially for those who take their Christianity seriously. Both professional Christian workers and lay people because they want their lives to count. We all want to make a difference, right? We do. We do. But the fact is, God has always made the first priority clear. We heard Michelle read for us Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. The Shema. Everything we are and have is to be devoted to loving God. This theme was extended and substantiated by Jesus when the lawyer came to him trying to trick him, asked him, what's the greatest commandment, Lord? He quotes the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. We say it at the beginning of every communion service, right? Summary of the law. Nothing is of greater importance than our loving God. If we fail to take this seriously, you may come to the end of your life and stand before Him and all your works count for nothing. This theme was explicit in Jesus' dealings with Mary and Martha. When Martha urged Jesus to send Mary into the kitchen to help and stop wasting time at Jesus' feet, what does Jesus say? Oh, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the greater portion. God wants us to be doers, yes, to feed his sheep. But he wants us to be before we do. Love Jesus first. We need to reflect honestly in our lives in light of Peter's words, Lord, you know everything. <laughs> he knows everything. In Peter's previous affirmations of Jesus' omniscience, he used a strong Greek word in verse 15 and 16 that meant Jesus knew every detail. But here, he switches to a different word that means intimate, personal Knowledge, as if to say, Lord, you've walked with me. You know me personally in every way. The good, the bad, the ugly. Boom. We can bank on that. He knows us. In that way. And if we are honest about our love, he will affirm what exists and will challenge and enable us to go higher and deeper. Today, some of us may experience constant frustration because you haven't gotten first things first. You haven't gotten back to the basics. You haven't gone back to the fundamentals. Perhaps your job is all you can think about. 
Perhaps your pet ministry is all you can think about. Perhaps your season tickets to the Browns or the Buckeyes or the Tribe or whatever is all you can think about. Or your next kid's activity. After all, being a good parent means you've got to get your kids in a thousand things, right? Or if you're a student, finding your identity in relationships. Got to have a boyfriend, got to have a girlfriend. My friends, my sports, my extracurricular activities. If any of that's the case for you and you're feeling frustrated like that, I think we need to heed the example of John Woolman, who was the old Quaker, who, when too many customers came to his shop at one time, he would send them away to more needy merchants for the sake of Christ. Because he knew they needed the business too. He forego bit for went business so that they could get some business too. Let's get our priorities straight. Let's put first things first. Imagine yourself standing on the shore of Tiberias with Jesus. Just you. The sea of eternity stretching on as a shimmering backdrop. And you hear Jesus ask you this question. Do you love me? Without comparing yourself to anybody else, do you really love me? Do you have an affection for me? Christ Church, we must love him above and beyond anything or anyone else. How do we do that? How do we make our love for Jesus the highest priority of our lives? Well, first, we must be absolute honest about our current level of our love for God. Okay? Start there. In your personal worship time, do you say to the Lord, Lord, I love you? Start there in your prayer closet. It's just you and him. Start. And be honest about where you are. Secondly, we need to spend time with him. Because the more time we spend with him, the more we will love him. How much time have you spent with him this week? Last month. We spend time with those we love. And if that's a struggle for you, we've got all kinds of small groups to help you in that journey. Because we're all at times struggle. This is an honest struggle. We're all Peter at some time, right? That's what the whole first six weeks of the journey group is about, is developing your own personal worship time. I encourage you, if you're not in a group, get in some kind of group. Journey groups, we're working on bearing fruit like this. First six weeks, just on developing that aspect of our walk with Christ. And if you can't make that time commitment, we've got all kinds of groups. We got Linda Jackson's Bible study on Tuesday mornings. We got Art Hall's men's group that meets at the Starbucks in River, real on the, every other Wednesday morning. We've got the community Bible study that many of our women are involved with that meets in Fairview Park in small groups, just walking through whole books of the Bible. We've got the Avon Lake group, our final meeting for the year. We're going to eat dinner. You can still join us. We'd love to have you. 
You know, Sunday nights at my house, 6 o'clock, we're going to eat chicken. I'm grilling. Y'all come. And we're going to talk about, we're going to wrap it up with just talking about the importance of Christian community in the church. You know, if you can't make that one, we got the 39 articles. You know, I mean, you know, if we have just this bigger group, that'll be thrilling. Because I'm going to teach on it, then we'll break up into groups and discuss it. You know, what do we believe? Why? You know, and pray for one another, that we would walk in the truths that we believe as Anglican Christians. See, this truth of loving Jesus means that every closet of our lives gets opened and you need to examine it. Uh, for Mother's Day, we, bought, we got Kimmy Stitch Fix, you know. We all pitched in and got her a Stitch Fix subscription. So four times a year, she's going to get new clothes. And I told her, for every piece of clothing you get, you got to give something away to, you know, Goodwill or someplace like that. So she had a whole bag of clothes that are sitting in the back of my car. She goes, i got to clean out my closet. And I said, yeah, you do. Spiritually, we all do. We examine, we clean out every relationship in our lives. This call to love God this way destroys any option of being one person on Sunday morning and another person on Monday morning. Okay? You can't be one person, you know, when you're at church and another person on a date. What you do on the internet needs to be just as pure as what you do in your Bible reading. The way we talk to our parents, young people, the way we talk to our authorities and our bosses needs to be as wholesome as the way you talk to me. There needs to be an authentic love for God that starts with God-oriented affections, desires, and thoughts that permeates our speaking and our behavior and then influences the way we spend our money, how we dress, how we drive, and our forms of entertainment. Whether we're eating, singing, exercising, blogging, texting, drawing, love for Jesus is to be in action and seen. I think this was the key to Mother Teresa's life. Yeah, when she was wiping the wounds of someone who didn't have much longer to live, she imagined she was wiping Jesus' wounds. When she was scrubbing a floor, she imagined as if she was scrubbing Jesus' floor. We need to have a conscious sense that as we go throughout our day at our work, when our boss tells us, uh, gives us the task, it's just as if Jesus had a task. And we give us that task. And we approach it as such. That's our ministry here. We need to have a conscious sense of that. In our ministry, we're serving. We're serving because we love Jesus. So that when he says, do you love me? We can say, Lord, you know everything. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know that I love you. So in closing, be honest about the level of your love for Jesus. And secondly, Spend time with him in his word, in prayer. And as you go about your day, remember that your tasks, where you live, where you work, where you play, are all for Jesus and for his glory. 
Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this word which reminds us that we, each and every one of us, can be restored to you. No matter our performance as a believer in you this week, we can trust you. And we can follow you. Because you're about the business of restoring us just like Peter. Lord, we thank you for the cross. And we pray, Lord, we would walk in the reality of this restoration and love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength this week. For your honor and glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.